Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to welcome to the show Alan Parr. He loves to equip people and teach the Bible. He's an encouragement to anybody who may be frustrated by waiting on God. He says that his life is a reminder that nothing is too hard for God to those who believe. He received his uh, Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He adores his wife and his two kids, and he's the host of The Beat on his YouTube channel. Alan, welcome. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to hang out today and have a good conversation with you and your listeners, and uh, just excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you were recommended to me by uh, someone who's a regular on my show who I respect a great deal, and and I checked out your YouTube channel, and it was great. Well, thank you so much. I don't know who that was, but I would love to know. Maybe you could tell me offline who that was, but whoever that is, I'm I'm, uh, very thankful that they recommended me. Yeah, I'll spell his name correctly for the sake of the check writing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's jump into uh, just what it's like with Christians today. And there's so many people who are, they say they're believers, but they're kind of biblically illiterate. And there is a, a slow fade from uh, true doctrinal Christianity. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem. I think it's a big problem now. Uh, you know, whenever I was growing up— um, you know, they had Sunday school, and, and uh, you know, there was a lot of biblical sound teaching. And uh, But now I think with the rise of the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to say megachurch movement, but, um, you know, churches are changing quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's not as much of a focus anymore on Christian education, Sunday school programs. We're even seeing a huge exodus from pastors actually using the Word of God. Uh, in their sermons, uh, there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of um, you know stories and illustrations and felt need teaching and things like that. And and so it's not all the fault of the believer as to why there's so many believers that are biblically illiterate. A lot of it may fall on the church if it's not a focus of the church to actually train people up in the Word of God. Then we can't expect those who are following uh, to be passionate about it as well. So I think there's an issue there, um, but I also think that, you know, Christians have to take responsibility as well for our faith individually. You know, people from other faiths know exactly what they believe and why they believe it, but oftentimes um, many Christians are just not, uh, it's not a focus point for us to be fully equipped in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Alan, I know there are, in Scripture, there's four different kinds of descriptions of believers, like a, a non-believer or a baby Christian or worldly Christian. Would you walk us through that? Yeah, sure thing. So the Apostle Paul gives us uh, four, if you will, classes of men. And um, and so he calls the unbeliever uh, those who are non-spiritual. And he says in 1 Corinthians that, um, you know, those who are not spiritual are not able to discern spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. So when we try to explain certain things to a non-Christian, 
and we get frustrated whenever they don't understand. We don't need to get frustrated because the Bible says that there are certain things that, um, that they are not going to be able to understand because they can only be discerned through the Spirit. And so you have, uh, you have that class of, 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 uh, of individuals. And then if that individual gets saved, then Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 refers to that individual as a baby Christian. And, um, you know, this is just a Christian. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. It's, uh, it's not their fault any more than it is the fault of a two-year-old who doesn't know how to do calculus or doesn't know how to add and subtract. It's just the stage in which they are in. They are a baby Christian. They're not expected to know a lot. They're not expected to be a super mature Christian any more than we would expect a, a baby to be able to feed themselves, right, or cook mm-hmm. a dinner or something like that. So you have baby Christians. And then, unfortunately, we have this third category, and I think this is the category that concerns us the most, and that's the, the category of carnal Christians. And Paul talks about carnal Christians as, I would probably say a carnal Christian is a combination of a Christian who remains a baby Christian for far too long. And so this is the proverbial, you know, somebody who is, you know, 10 years old and they're still sucking their thumb and they're still wetting their pants and things like that. I mean, we would look at that person as there's something wrong with them. So a carnal Christian is not only someone who's a baby Christian, but also somebody who's living a fleshly carnal life that for all intents and purposes, you can't really see the difference between their life and the life of a, of a worldly person or a non-spiritual person. And then the final category is uh, Paul refers to these, those who are spiritual or he that is spiritual. And um, it's not for us to point fingers and say, well, you're a baby Christian, you're a carnal Christian, you're a spiritual Christian. But it's just to understand that these are people who are living out a more mature, focused Christian life. Alan Parr is my guest. You can go to alanparr.com to learn more about Alan and his uh, writing and his YouTube channel and his ministries. Um, Alan, I was disturbed when I saw the statistic on one of your videos that 57% of professing Christians believe that there are multiple ways to get to heaven. That's shocking. Yeah, very, very shocking and very disappointing, but I think it's also a clear barometer of where we are as a faith, right? I mean, why is it that so many people who claim to be Christian also, um, you know, believe that there's some other way to get to God. I think it's the problem is that we are allowing oftentimes our worldview to, in, to affect our interpretation of the Bible, which is obviously a very, very big mistake. Mm-hmm. When I um, think of a lot of churches that I know and people who are going to church and they're faithful in their attendance, but like you brought up earlier, I'm concerned about how much discipleship, how much feeding is going on. You know, Jesus said, go make disciples. Um, don't entertain people at church. I think there's a difference. I think there's a huge difference. And it's sad to see that so many Christians have moved so far away from discipleship. And I have the saying that I think that oftentimes we might be focusing more uh, on what Jesus said mm-hmm. and not, uh, not enough on what Jesus did. You know, we love, to, we love to focus on the parables of Christ and the teachings and the sermons. But what did Jesus actually do? Well, Jesus was busy at making disciples, and that's what he told us to do. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one lost art in the church today. Mm-hmm. As I watched a bunch of your uh, videos, Alan, one thing I walked away with is I thought this man 
fears God, does not fear man. And that made me happy. Um, but there's a lot of people that do fear man today. They fear disapproval. They fear being canceled. They fear all kinds of things that might make them reluctant to be bold in their faith. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that this is a huge problem for us uh, is that, um, you, you know, we have a lot of people who claim to be Christian and they're not doing as Paul said in Romans one sixteen. for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation, right? And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of us that are ashamed. We're afraid. We don't want to be politically incorrect. We don't want to be called intolerant. We don't want to be called a bigot. We don't want to be called any of these things. And so as a result, we kind of shrink back and uh, in fear because we're more concerned about fitting in mm-hmm. and pleasing, pleasing the world and, and, and being acceptable in the eyes of our society than to truly take a stand for what we believe or what we say we believe as a Christian. Yeah, and then not to mention how many times in Scripture we are told not to fear. Over and over again, mm-hmm. yeah, we are told not to fear, for God is with us. Yeah, so the, the bold stance we need to take as believers is definitely a challenge for many, many people for the very reason that you just said, Ellen. They, they don't want to be cast aside. They don't want to be cut, uh, kicked out of the club or whatever organization they're in or lose their job or whatever. And yet I think there's never been a time more important than right now than to uh, stand up in boldness for our faith and defend what we believe. And I agree because our faith is being attacked by so many different um, directions. You know, you have cults, you have unbelievers, you have atheists and skeptics, and you have um, other religious organizations that um, are attacking our faith every single day. And it's up to us as believers to take a stand for what we believe, and not just what we believe, but our values and our our behaviors and what's right and what's wrong, things like abortion and the right to life and um, these different things that we see coming up. Christians have to take a stand. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the population of the United States in 1975 to where we are today, and we have a significant uh, growth in population over those last uh, 30-plus years. And I'm thinking there has not only been a lot of people added to this world, but an explosion of evil, because that's what happens when you have more people, you have more evil. Yeah, and this is not surprising. No. You know, the Bible says that in the last times, you know, evil will, will, will occur, and that's one of the big signs of that we're living in the last days. And obviously, we don't know how many days are left before Christ will return, but it's definitely a sign. The Bible says that, you know, all these evil things will happen, and people will be lovers of themselves, and boastful, and disobedient to their parents, and we see all those things playing out in our society right before our eyes. Mm-hmm. Ellen, I am fascinated with uh, your delivery style, your tone, everything you d- you've been doing on your YouTube videos are, is really inviting. So way to go in that department. I want to take uh, just a little break, but when I come back, I want the audience to get to know you just a little bit more. This is your first time on the show, and I- I'd love to hear your testimony. I read a little bit of it on your website, and it's very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you personally. Does that sound okay? That'd be great. Looking forward to it. Terrific. Alan Parr is my guest. Go to alanparr.com, A-L-L-E-N-P-A-R-R.com. We'll be right back.
You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I bet at some point you have felt stuck in your uh, spiritual life. Many of us have. Uh, Perhaps you feel like you're going through the motions and that doesn't really feel good. My guest, Alan Parr, his passion is to really help equip believers with tools and training and teaching that they need to live a more victorious life and then fulfill God's purpose for their own life. He can be discovered at alanparr.com, A-L-L-E-N-P-A-R-R.com. And his YouTube is called The Beat. You can go on his YouTube channel. But as a first-time guest on the show, Alan, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and what your story is all about. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, first of all, once again, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. My pleasure. Yeah, so I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a loving Christian home. It's a a split home. My parents got divorced whenever I was uh, six years old, and uh, thankfully, the Lord got a hold of my life to some degree. Whenever I was eight years old, my father led my sister, uh, said, led me and my sister to the Lord. And um, I didn't really have a strong relationship with God until I was about 19 or 20 or so. So from the age of 8 until 19 or 20, I was, wasn't necessarily a, a uh, rebellious child, but I didn't really read my Bible, didn't really have a sense of um, purpose in my life. And so as a result, made some poor decisions, but never really went too far off the beating track. And it wasn't until college, and this is why I'm so passionate about discipleship, it wasn't until college where someone took the time to actually sit down and disciple me and teach me, um, you know, how to study the Bible, how to live the Christian life, what certain things that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing and why they were wrong, that I really started to take my faith seriously. And so uh, at that point, this was when I was about 20 years old or so, so a couple years after that, I actually um, graduated from college and went on to get a master's degree in electrical engineering. And at that point, I thought I was going to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I went off to Detroit, Michigan to be a engineer uh, for Ford Motor Company, did that for a couple of years. And while I was there, I had the amazing opportunity to teach the Bible for the first time. And it was amazing because with everything I had done in my life, I'd never really felt that I was very clear on exactly what God had created me to do until I started teaching the Bible for the first time, and this was back in 1999. I'll never forget it. And it was in that moment that I knew, wow, this is something that I want to dedicate the rest of my life to doing. And so at that point, I started making plans to go to seminary. At that point, I didn't even know what seminary was. I didn't, had never heard of the word before. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I really didn't. All I knew is that some of the people that I was listening to, whether it was uh, Tony Evans or Chuck Swindoll or J. Vernon McGee or David Jeremiah and some of these guys that I still have the utmost respect for, they kept mentioning this place called Dallas Theological Seminary where they all went to school. And I thought, well, wow, this must be a good school if all these guys went to the same school. Well, let me look into it. So to make a long story short, I um, quit my job as an engineer and started working – excuse me, started um, uh, attending Dallas Theological Seminary in the fall of 2000. Graduated in 2004 with my Master of Theology degree, and from 2004 until about 2014, for about 10, 10, 11-year stretch there, I was bivocational. 
I was teaching high school math as well as working part-time at churches because I just couldn't find a full-time church that would get, or a church that would give me a full-time job at that point. So I was always bivocational for mm-hmm. a very long time, still single, not married. And then in 2014, I believe it was God himself who gave me this amazing idea to start a YouTube channel. I had no idea what I was doing, had never done any sort of video recording ever in my life. It was all brand new for me, but I wanted to create a platform where I could um, truly express myself and use my gifts and reach more people than just the people in the local church. So I started a YouTube channel, never imagining that it would grow to where it is today. And now here we are eight years later, uh, 826,000 subscribers later, 70 million views later. And I say all that not to boast, but just to talk about how faithful God has been whenever we step out on faith and trust him. And and I must throw this in there, obviously, because it's the biggest blessing of them all, is that in 2014, I met the love of my life. So a lot of things happened in 2014. I got the vision for my YouTube ministry. I met my wonderful wife. We got married in 2015, had our first child 2017, had a second child 2018. And now I'm in ministry full time. And my wife is in <laughs> ministry full time as well. So it's just come full circle. Yeah, you are in the zone, my friend. Oh, God has been really, yeah. really gracious. Yeah, and Alan, yeah. Alan, I didn't hear that as a brag when you're talking about the numbers of subscri- subscribers and views. That is a to God be the glory because this is something God put in your heart, and you are so gifted at communicating. So you get on your YouTube channel and you share the word. So uh, that is to God be the glory. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Bill. I really appreciate yeah. that. I'd love to back up a little bit though and hear about when you're 20 years old. Uh, the person that invited you into a discipleship relationship, how did that invitation come about? Yes. So um, this was a very interesting because at this point I was dating a young lady and let's just say we were not dating in a way that would honor God. And none of my friends in college were, we were doing things that college kids do um, just really weren't. It wasn't uh, our faith. Wasn't a focus. Matter of fact, I can remember my freshman year in college and I only went to church one time, my whole freshman year. I just didn't, uh, you know, I just didn't have a passion for it. it just, you know, I didn't take my faith with me, if you will, to, to, to college. And there was a guy by the name of Deacon Kevin Miller. That's interesting. At the time, we thought he was really old because he was 30 years old and we were all 18 or 19. We thought he was really old, but now looking back, he was really young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now that I'm 46 years old, I look back and say, he was really young. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he decided uh, to come down to our campus every Friday for, I'd say, several months and to do a Bible study with us. And I'll never forget, he's taught us the parables of Christ. And I was so fascinated because all these parables that he taught always had some sort of weird type of, under, you know, unlock, some sort of thing that you have to understand to unlock the mystery. And I started becoming fascinated with the parables of Christ and how to understand what Jesus was talking about. And so that's what really sparked my initial hunger to want to read and study the Bible was Deacon Kevin Miller coming down to our campus on a Friday night for several months and just teaching us the Bible. And I will never forget that time. Well, that's important. Thank you for mentioning his name and giving, uh, pointing, pointing to him and what he did. That's important that listeners hear that. So you, you go to church regularly through high school, and now you go to college and you go once in a year. What excuses did you give your parents? <laughs> well, I don't think my parents knew that I wasn't <laughs> going, to, going to school, or excuse me, going to, going to church. And, uh, you know, I went to church in high school because my parents, well, my mom, uh, I was living with my mom at the time. 
and uh and she 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 was dead set on taking my sister uh taking me and my sister to to church and uh so we went every sunday but i you know i can't say that i really enjoyed it it was a traditional baptist church we didn't have like a youth service with video games and a basketball court and you know all these things that the youth have nowadays we didn't have any of that we'd had to go and sit in the adult service and listen to some sermon that didn't really apply to our lives and that's probably the reason why my passion for church really wasn't there when I went to college. Mm -hmm. Alan, why do you think that there's a a fair number of pastors, preachers that seem to have watered their sermons down a little bit? I think it's because, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that there's a, there's a huge hunger. There's a lot of hunger out there for what I call the three B's buildings, bucks, and bodies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We, we want to build more buildings, and in order to do that, we need more bodies, and we need all those bodies to give us more bucks. And we know that if we say certain things that offend people, that they may not come back. If we tell people that you can't shack up, if we tell people that, you know, hey, you need to stay in your marriage because God honors that, um, even if you don't like the person that you're married to, if we tell people that we, that what they really need to hear and not what they want to hear, they might leave, or they might Stay, but they may get offended and say, I don't like that guy. I don't want to give him my money. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier to just give people what they want to hear. You're also going to attract more people to your church if you're just preaching a cotton candy, watered-down gospel than if you're preaching the truth. And, uh, and so I think that's a major motivation for, unfortunately, it's unfortunate, but I think that's the age in which, which we live. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where I heard this, Alan, but Hard preaching equals soft hearts, and soft preaching equals hard hearts. Mm, I'm going to have to write that one down. Yeah, that's a good one. one. Yeah, so (laughs) you give hard preaching. I remember my pastor 20 years ago said, I'm going to preach through the book of Romans. It'll take about eight months to do, and I assume that at the end of that eight months, probably up to 10% of the congregation will will leave. (laughs) Because you you (laughs) preach the truth, and people are going to feel offended, and they're going to leave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add one add one more thing. I think that we're living in a day now where we need, uh, you know, people tend to want more to keep their attention right. than just the good old fashioned Bible. You know, it used to be we just preach the Bible yeah. verse by verse, expository preaching, and that works for most people. But now you got to bring cars on stage. You have to have <laughs> props. You have to have all these different things. Yeah. And, and if you don't have those things, then people can quickly tune out, which is very, very sad. Yeah. Well, keep up the outstanding work. I, I do enjoy your, your videos there. You do a great job and I'm going to encourage my audience to go check them out. Uh, is there just YouTube Alan Parr and we'll get right to the beat, huh? Yes. If they go to, uh, if they just go to any uh, browser and open up YouTube and search for um, Alan Parr, the beat, yep. my channel, it. along with a whole bunch of other videos will pop up. And Perfect. Be right there. Perfect. I think that's how I did it. Alan, thanks so much for doing the show. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You bet. Alan Parr has been my guest. You can head over to alanparr.com. Check out him and his uh, great work on YouTube. We'll take a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Drive, drive, drive. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
The woke movement is definitely escalating and now commands the focus of most American life and claims to be the sole authority and path to finding to fighting oppression and injustice in areas of gender, race, and sexuality. My guest has written a book called Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Nicole Maring is her name. She's a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And she's uh, on our studio line right now. I'm Noel. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Oh, it's a, it's a very complicated topic that you've jumped into. So let me start by asking you, did you have some hesitations writing this one? You know, I didn't actually. Okay. Uh, I mean, so far as it was intimidating just to take on a book in general. Um, but no, the topic I felt like was something that I was I'm really interested in. I've been writing articles about it for a while. And it felt like it's a book that I really had to write in some ways. I, I, I just really wanted to write it. Um, and I thought it was, it was things that a perspective from a, Christ, a Christian perspective on the subject needed to be put out there. Yeah. Can you sort of give us a, a working definition of, of the woke culture? Sure. I think that the, a neutral definition would be that to be woke is to be alert and attuned to the various layers of oppression in society, particularly okay. surrounding race, gender, sexuality. Okay. Uh, Nicely spoken, by the way. So okay. are you ag- against the woke culture? Uh, I am insofar as I really think that it, in what I explore in my book is that it's not fundamentally a movement for justice. I think it, it's actually fundamentally a movement that's unjust and unmerciful and, and ultimately becomes its own sort of secular religion that it cannot c- be compatible with Christianity. Um, and I think it's deeply dehumanizing and also wounds the very people that it aims to empower. Mm-hmm. So what is would be a response to uh, people that believe that being woke is pretty much required to overcome some of the racism and hatred uh, towards the oppressed? Yeah, no, I understand why they think that. And I think that's part of the power of the woke movement is that it seems like it's consistent with Christian principles. We want to walk with the oppressed and mm-hmm. walk with the marginalized and the suffering. Um, but what I think we have to understand is that there's far more going on in the ideology than just a uh, movement based on compassion. For example, um, you know, a lot of people and Christians, I know, were kind of surprised to hear that Black Lives Matter had a belief statement that included goals like queering the culture, disrupting this nuclear family. Um, You know, and they thought, well, what does this have to do with racial justice? But I think if we understand what the woke movement is animated by, it's really a freedom from oppression from other other groups outside of ourselves, but also the our, the oppression of having to conform to sexual morality, um, and that part of our liberation is defying any kind of moral norm. Um, and the more transgressive we can be, the more free we we actually become. But but also first and foremost, it plays on identity politics. So it says. We are defined not by the love of God, but by the hatred of man. We're defined by the hatred in society, either as a perpetrator or as a victim. And this is a, a really a, a reduction of the human person, I think, cannot um, be entertained by the Christian. Mm-hmm. And well, what about uh, people of faith? How should people of faith be responding to the woke culture? Well, I think first and foremost, the more that we can understand it and have clarity, because part of what happens, I think, is um, that it, it really, op- because it operates on confusion, and it owns like the words that we, you know, it, it's claiming the language that Christians use, such as fighting for justice and helping, um, you know, we, we are anti-racist in the, you know, common understanding of that word, not in the Ibram X. Kendi version. Um, 
but part of that, so part of that confusion is that kind of play on words, claiming language that traditionally is ours. Um, and so I think the more that we can get sift past that confusion, understand what actually the movement does, um, then we can have the courage to resist it. But we have to understand it because otherwise we're going to get played, you know, <laughs> by the confusion. Um, and, and the more the clarity we have, the more we can help our brothers and sisters to see that this is actually going to, you know, really harm people. This is not a helpful movement. Mm-hmm. And victimization is a big part of this, isn't it? It is. And, I, you know, I think that, that that's one of the most disempowering parts of it is that you really you're given incentive to kind of scan your environment and see how you're being wounded. Um, and, you know, we're all wounded in certain ways. Right. Uh, but once we start having a trying to claim like a moral stature based on ways that other people have hurt us, we really le- lose our ability to see how we need mercy. You know that I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And once I understand that, then I can look with eyes of mercy upon each other. Um, but if I define myself based on the sins of the other person, then I'm in this posture of constant, constantly accusing. Who can I accuse? Who can I condemn? Um, so, I, I, you know, that, that's really the work of Satan, I think. In, in a lot of ways, Satan calls us um, by our sins, you know, and, and uh, he's the great accuser. Um, but also it, you're finding your identity based on your ability to transgress the moral law. So that's another way in which we're saying this is who I am. I'm reduced to what I want to do with my you know, pelvic region. Um, and that's a, another hugely reductive definition of a human person. Mm-hmm. Noelle Maring is my guest. Her book is Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. And again, Noelle, I appreciate taking on a complicated subject. I know it's can be very emotional and controversial for many. Um, is Does being woke go against Christian values? Yeah, I mean, that's the main thesis of my book, is that I think fundamentally the target is not, you know, a group out there or a political movement. I think God himself is the, the fundamental target of this movement. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways that um, we can unpack that. But um, fundamentally, you know, I think it's a, a new version of kind of an old um, sort of neo-Marxist ideas, also some Freudian ideas and postmodernism that really target the idea of the logos, that we can have, that there's a mind of God who is manifest in the human person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and authority overall. And I think those, um, the logos is the fundamental target. And I know that sounds kind of complicated, but I really wrote the book to be accessible, to make this this concept kind of really clear and in, in, that I think anyone can understand it um, once they start reading it. Mm-hmm. So you you write in your book, uh, Awake, Not Woke, that the woke prioritizes a group over an individual. People are viewed as oppressed, the oppressor, or a combination of both. How does this go against our God-given identities? Sure. Well, you know, um, I, I think that fun, fundamentally that's a Marxist concept, right? That he really started that idea of we're defining people into division. We're defining people based on, um, you know, being perpetrators or victims. And then that fundamental, that, but the, the problem is, is that what happens is that you're not allowed to think freely at that point. You're, you're really reduced to, into the mob because you are not, you know, for example, when the Women's March in 2017 was happening and they all wore the pink hats, there were a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to march with them. And they were disavowed from having an official association because the idea is that you have to support the idea that the definition of the human of a woman is fighting against her oppression, particularly with, it, with that, the act of abortion. Um, and so insofar as you're a woman is not empowered. It is whether or not you support the ideology. And Christianity is not an ideology. It's thinking with reality. We're called to think with all of reality, not with a particular political movement that reduces reality to into, into such an atheistic way. 
um, as Marxism does and socialism does and this movement does. Mm-hmm. Noel, you write in your book that the rupture of the woke movement is fundamentally a crisis of the impending erasure of the human person. On a fundamental level, the response of the church needs to be reclaiming what it means to be a man and to be a woman. Yeah, no, I think this is, um, we're seeing this in spades right now, obviously, with the transgender movement, which is just really exploding. And, you know, there's, for children particularly, there's really a, it's, it's, it's fairly hard to wrap our minds around because it seems too sinister, but there really is a movement trying to get children at young, very young ages to reject the idea of bodily meaning by thinking that they can claim whatever gender that they, that they, that they think that they have, that they can, you know, imagine into a reality something that defies their bodily reality. And the scary thing about that is that it's not just, um, you know, kind of silly or magical thinking. It's actually saying your body is meaningless, which means that you are meaningless. Because our, if you do something to your, my body, you do something to me. Our bodies are, are com- we're a composite of body and soul. Um, so this is how it reject, rejects what the, the nature of the human person. But even before that, the sexual revolution is based on the idea of a lack of bodily meaning that we can catch our, you know, there's no moral law written into how we ought to behave and our bodily meaning. This has harmed us left and right because we don't have any moral vocabulary to speak about the wounds that happen in such a chaotic, sexually open environment. Um, And so people aren't given the language to speak about that. And so they walk through the world with these wounds um, and they don't know how to address them, address them or nor to heal from them. So, Noel, if there was a person struggling with anorexia and they weighed 81 pounds and they they told you that they were fat, what would you say? Uh, well, I mean, I, such a complicated situation. I think that they would need to go to get mental, you know, some, some real help with that. But you certainly are not helping them to confirm them and to lie, right? Exactly. It's not helpful to let them encourage them to harm their bodies because of a fiction. Um, so the, you know, the, the, the first and foremost, whatever course you proceed with has to be based in reality, has to be based in the truth. And we're not helping these kids and these grownups by, by confirming a lie. Yeah. I mean, is it ever a mental health issue that we can discuss or is it non-negotiable when it comes to what a person feels about their body? Yeah, I mean, I think the technical term would be gender dysphoria, right? Um, sure. And yeah, sure. And, uh, and I, I, it's, that's what's so bizarre is that it's become a movement that is so supported on corporate levels, you know, the halls of, you know, mm-hmm. political power, powers that be. But um, I, I get emails left and right, you know, from corporations telling me, encouraging this sort of trans, um, transgenderism. And it's really, you know, I think that the more we let this go and think it's just this fringe issue out there, the more we really are, are just uh, burying our head in the sand and not realizing, no, this is something that all human beings and particularly Christians are called to defend what is true. Um, because this is a movement that's harming people and it's redefining what it means to be a human in ways that are going to have really, um, uh, you know, alarming uh, effects eventually, mm-hmm. if not already. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the difference between being authentic in the woke culture and for those who are Christians? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, authenticity has become a big buzzword. Um, and, if, you know, if there's a, but there's two ways of understanding what it is to be authentic. For the woke, it really means it's part of this idea of um, you find your liberation in your transgression. So I'm authentic insofar as I'm willing to identify how I have sexual proclivities that are different and make me unique and the way I can embrace them and, and express them into the world. That's integrally tied to my authenticity. 
Um, and so it encourages you to have the most outlandish presentation of self. I think we see this in pride parades, for example, because the more outlandish you are, the more you, the more transgressive you present yourself, the, the more free you are, the more liberated you are, the more authentic you are. Versus in the Christian in the Christian understanding of, the, of such a word, it's connected to authority. It's connected to author, even etymologically. To be authentic is to be actually connected to God, because we were made to, for, by Him to be with Him, and so to define ourselves away from Him is really to be reducing who we actually are. It's to be inauthentic. Um, and so I, I think that major shift is something that we don't notice in language, but it's an important one to understand. Mm-hmm. And well, you say uh, in your book, hatred for an idea an ideology can easily become hatred for the person espousing it. And this would be the true triumph of the very thing we think we are fighting. That's yes. a very smart yes. remark. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's an important thing for us as Christians to be aware of is that we're fighting. And I, you know, I remind myself all the time, I'm fighting an ideology and not fighting the, the people who are deceived by it. Yeah, because if if Satan looks at us and says, whatever I can do to get them to hate each other and divide between themselves, I'm all for that. I don't care what it is. I'll use whatever is available. That's right. He's the great divider. He scatters us. He wants us hating each other. Um, And and there's a real temptation there, I think, because politics gets so heated so quickly. Um, I think the more that we can keep that idea at the forefront, that we are called to be loving people, to break this cycle of hatred and tribalism, uh, but to still not shy away from the truth, the the more effective we'll be. Mm -hmm. Noelle Merring is my guest. She's a fellow at the Washington, D.C. think tank and of public and of Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's written a book called Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with Noel in just a minute. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. My guest is Noelle Merring. She is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. There, I got it right this time. All right, she's written a book called Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. And uh, Noelle, as we talk about the woke culture and why does it want to perpetuate the victimization mentality? What is their goal in doing that? Well, I think, I think when you really perpetuate someone's idea that they are a victim and, you know, you see this really clearly that they're, it's so extreme that they're trying to say, you know, that uh, with the equity, the equity of results, that any disparity results between different groups is a result of injustice. And the, and the meaning behind that, I think, is really saying that anything that doesn't work out for you in your life is the result of ex- systemic forces that are outside of you, and which basically says you don't have any ability to transcend your circumstances. And this is the worst message you want to give to someone if you want to motivate them in any other context, like if you're a leadership or a mentor, um, you're, you're mentoring someone into becoming a leader or into giving an addiction or, you know, you, you have to help them to see that they, they can make a change. Um, and so that idea of it, it really is one of despair. And once you get people to feel despair, then you, it's a short path to get them to feel rage. And really, this movement is wanting the end goal is a revolution. Um, and so if you want a revolution, you have to have a, a populace that's furious. 
Mm-hmm. So how does this uh, work against the teachings of Christ and Christianity? Well, um, so the, Christianity marks uh, really targeted as being one of the primary obstacles to revolution. Okay. Why? Because I think Christianity gives us a, a context for our suffering. If our life is difficult, if we have a daily daily crosses, um, you know, if someone treats us unjustly, we're taught that our dignity is found in the eyes of God, not in the hatred of man. We're taught to suffer well our circumstances because our Lord suffered for us. And so we have a model of suffering that is beautiful and and um, and willing. Uh, you know, and so it gives us meaning fundamentally. And the movement really thrives on people being stripped of any sort of meaning, particularly any meaning to their suffering. So why does this woke initiative target, you know, innocent uh, people and then try to destroy family dynamics? Yeah, that's a really important one, I think, to understand. I wrote almost a whole, I brought a whole chapter on it. But, um, you know, I think part of one of the things we have to be really clear on is that innocence for the woke is a form of dominance. Why? Because to be innocent of something is to perpetuate the idea that there is a norm. So, for example, a few years ago, there's a lot of hubbub about how there were transgender story hours for ch- children at local libraries. And all these woke moms were taking their kids to watch these tra- tra- um, transgender people kind of teach them how to twerk and dance. And they would read them stories and blah, blah, blah. And the idea was that, you know, the, the stated goal was we want them to not be bullies, so we want to expose them to this. But we also want to open up the door in case one of these children is prone to living a life of that's alternative. But the deeper goal, I think, is that insofar as the children felt uncomfortable with these men in high heels and miniskirts and were giggling, that uncomfortability is sort of a sign uh, that they are fringe, that this is alternative, that this is not normal. And so they have to be disabused of that innocence in order to disabuse the concept that there is something that is a norm, a normal way of being in the world. Um, And so you see it in more and more sinister ways where children have to be exposed to adult sexuality, um, where children have to be exposed to, you know, the uh, the gender fluidity. Um, and really, um, it really manifests too in the the act of abortion, in particular, where it's the the fundamental, most deeply innocent um, a creature. Uh, it becomes becomes um, an object, of, a target as well for the movement. And also, women. I think women traditionally, you know, are there's a there's a sort of an an, an icon iconography of innocence attached to the woman. Men are called to be innocent too. I'm not saying that this is only for women, but insofar as women in the feminist movement are called to be empowered by becoming rebels. You know, there's a real rebel spirit. Um, and that's another form in which the, the movement really targets our innocence. Mm-hmm. Noelle Maring is my guest, and she writes in her book, Awake, Not Woke, that critical thinking has been overtaken by critical theory. Define the difference, Noelle, and the dangers that are involved. Sure. So critical thinking is basically, I think, what we normally think is what we're, what we're going to be educated in in school is how to think critically, how to develop an argument, and then how to invite the strongest objections to my argument, because my goal is to arrive at truth. And so I want to invite criticism by argument because I want to strengthen it. The goal of critical theory is not truth, however, it's power. It's to train people to become an activist. And so that, that shift in goals really creates a fundamentally different methods. So in critical theory, you don't invite objections. You only, can, you only dole them out because your goal is to win, not to arrive at something true. You don't, you're not interested in course correcting. You're interested in changing the system. Um, and part of critical theory is also it's that idea that we don't tolerate both sides. So you're not trying to dialogue. You're actually trying to silence the dominant view. And I think we see this all the time in left and right, where, um, or in the media, 
where we're saying, you know, this is such a there's so much hypocrisy. Like, I don't you know, they're not giving equal time to different arguments or what, you know, what, what have you. Or they're canceling, they're, they're silencing, they're censoring. Um, but that is fundamental to the movement. You're supposed to censor. You're supposed to silence. You only want to elevate the revolutionary ideology. Noelle, you say in your book that with a death toll around 56 million per year worldwide, abortion is the sacrament and greatest symbol of the woke religion because in one act, it destroys each icon of the family, the child, the father, and the mother. Meanwhile, the woman is also liberated from any bond to a man or to their child inside. Anyone who knows someone who carries this in their in her past knows it to be a lifelong struggle of sadness and guilt. Depression and regret are common, but we are not supposed to talk about that. That's right. I think this has been one of the biggest, um, you know, like psychological operations on women is to think that this is this essential avenue to the way that they become powerful is by um, denying something that's so fundamental to themselves, which is their ability to generate human a human person. Um, and, you know, we can pretend that it's okay and kind of coerce the, you know, can, um, coerce people into thinking that this is something empowering. But a woman fundamentally understands what she's doing is really is really awful. And it puts women in a terrible place because once you say that this is an, a fine road to go down, well, then, you know, it, they're a prey to, for example, a, an irresponsible man who thinks who doesn't want to take responsibility for a child and so therefore expects her to do this act. So there's a lot of women, who I think, who are coerced into this decision, too. Um, and, and that has to be understood as well. So it fundamentally makes a man irresponsible because he's supposed to be a protector. And it makes a woman, um, you know, who is called to nurture the life inside her, fundamentally do the exact opposite. And the child is then disposed of. Um, and so this has created a rupture in society that I think is far deeper um, and greater and graver than, than what, we, what we can even imagine. Mm-hmm. And well, how do we turn this narrative around, especially as people of faith, without seeming racist or closed-minded? Yeah. Well, I think that first and foremost, we have to be not afraid, right? So I think that there's a lot of fear, I think, that people have. No one wants to be called a racist or a bigot or regressive or anything, any of these slurs. But I think that insofar as we let that fear control us, we give it power. And we, you know, and, and the more that we refuse to be kowtowed by that, the, the less power those words will have and the less they'll ring true. They start to ring very hollow. And I think we're seeing more and more parents feel that. And, you, you know, the Virginia school boards, the school board movement, and with an election recently out there, I think there's a lot of people are saying, you know, this is not okay what you're doing to our children. Um, and, and the only thing that they, they said in response after um, in objection to the parents' movement was, well, aren't you guys a bunch of racists? Well, that, that rings pretty hollow when you're talking about some of the disastrous things that have been going on in the schools that you're including pornography and ped- pedophilic porno- pornography in school system. So um, I think first and foremost, we have to not be afraid. Um, and I think we have to find a place in our life to resist it, some way in which we can fight against it um, and do so effectively. And we also have to, but the effectively is important. So we're Christians, we're called to be leaders, we're supposed to lead people to Christ, but we have to be effective leaders, which means we have to have, we have to reflect him in the world. So the more, the closer we grow to him and understand this is a spiritual battle and arm ourselves in our prayer lives successfully, then the more effective we will be in fighting this movement and leading people to a more beautiful, positive vision of of what their lives could be. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you respond to the words that are being changed in our society? I mean, whoever controls the words usually controls the culture. And right now we've had so many words altered, the meaning and usage of them. What is your defense against that? Well, I think we have to never 
take part in the lie, right, to paraphrase yes. Solzhenitsyn. So, for example, I was talking to a young Christian man recently, and he said, well, I have my pronouns in my LinkedIn, even though I don't believe it. And I said, well, you should change that. You know, you don't, we, don't, we don't participate in, in the silly act of saying I'm, I'm a she, her. I'm a woman. And so I don't, I, you know, to participate in something like that is to give, give power to an ideology that's fundamentally destructive. So I think we have to make sure that we are not participating in the lies. Um, we use words truthfully and accurately, um, and you know, it, it, and I think that that can that can lay that can lay a, a real foundation for other people too. Mm-hmm. And what do you hope people get out of your book? I, I, I truly hope that they just it helps people to understand what this movement is, how it functions, how to identify it as they walk through the world in the future, um, because I think the movement keeps reinventing itself. It's not going away anytime soon, but it could be weakened, and it could be you know I think and I think that we, the more that we have the people read the book and have the courage to kind of help in the in the effort to weaken it, that we can all band together because there's a lot of people who want to resist this, um, and, and it's it should we shouldn't be afraid about about that fight. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a very thoughtful person and very wise, so thank you for coming on the show and telling us about your book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology by Noel Merring. Noel, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.